0: Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. All right, all right, you guys are awake. This is good, this is good. Um, There is more, maybe more than we realize in our flesh, and when I say flesh, I mean it in the sense that the Bible refers to it, the Apostle Paul in Romans, where he talks about our flesh being that part of us that is our sin nature, that part that, that uh, loves ourselves and is self-reliant and self-centered, uh, that part that is completely corrupt in us, that there is, there is in our flesh, in our human sinful nature, more than we know, an opposition to God's grace. When, when we think of God's grace, That we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, When we think about God's grace, we can sit here and think, well, this is such a beautiful, glorious thing, right? But there's a subtle opposition inside of our souls about this. I would say that over the course of ministry, one of the most surprising things for me as a pastor is just how opposed our human souls, how opposed we can actually be and people are to grace. And we sometimes don't think about how subtle it can be. Uh, I was at a conference yesterday and one of the speakers uh, was saying how he didn't realize how amazing God's grace was until he was overseas sharing it with a group of people who were absolutely outraged at God's extravagant grace. That that God would be so gracious, it was just, it just was appalling to them. And he realized in that moment just how incredible grace is. Um, I was thinking about this this week as I'm studying this passage in Galatians 2, and uh, there's a preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who's long uh, passed away, uh, but he made the comment that if, if we, if we don't, or if we understand grace enough, it will inevitably bring each of us to the very question that's gonna be raised in this text. It will inevitably press into our lives so far that it will cause some objections to come up. And I was an 18-year-old man when uh, I came to know Jesus. And my youth pastor, the youth pastor at the church, Uh, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and I was completely blown away by Romans 5 verse 8. That God demonstrates his love toward us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It blew me away. I I, I sat in the church that day as if nothing else mattered. I was so blown away by God's grace. But in that day, in that passage of scripture by the power of God made my heart alive to Christ, and I I was converted that very day, but in days to follow, my youth pastor and some friends, they sat down with me, and we began to read God's word, and we began to press in to all that that meant to all that God's grace meant, that it is all about God, it is his doing, it is him who saves us, it is him who draws us, it is all God from start to finish, that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. And I remember in my soul as a very new Christian coming up against some serious opposition. And I started to say, wait a minute, do you mean that I could just go and sin and do whatever the heck I want to do and God's just going to forgive me? I, I could just live, I mean, this is quite a deal. You know, my, my flesh was kind of rearing its head, going, man, this is quite a deal. God has done this incredible thing. He will forgive my sins apart from any work that I have done. It's a gracious gift, right? Apart from anything that I have done. And so, so therefore, what does it matter, right? He's, he's going to forgive me. It's just grace, And I was just thinking, man, this, number one, it doesn't make sense, but yet I was like, this is a sweet deal. This is a sweet deal. God and I could have this really cool deal. I'll do whatever I want. At the end of the day, he'll forgive me. This is great, right? Sounds sweet to you? Ironically, many of us as Christians actually don't realize just how much that's our thinking. (laughs) Right? Right? This is the question that actually rises in this text. This question of God's extravagant grace, and there's this opposition inside of us. In fact, just just to give you a little note before we dive into Galatians 2, and I'll I'll show you this question. Um, In in the the New Testament, people were radically opposed to God's extravagant grace. Radically opposed to it. It, it. It caused all kinds of conundrums for instance, the when Jesus shared the parable of the workers, you know what that was? That was all about grace, right? The workers come. The one comes in the morning and he agrees to pay him this much. Let's just say twenty dollars for the sake of you know going through it. And the next guy comes two hours later. He says, "I'll pay you twenty bucks as well." The next guy comes, right? And he gets all the way to the end. Of the, day, the guy works for two hours and he gets the same amount that was paid to the others. And everybody is outraged that that the that the master of the vineyard would actually would actually, be, he, it's, it doesn't seem fair. That God, that this master somehow extravagantly paid them all the same amount, right? And they're all outraged. And what, is the, what does the master say? He says, is it, did we not agree to this? He says, is it, is it not mine to give as I want to give? Well, well, yeah. What were they mad about? His extravagance. They were mad about his generosity. You, you and I have more of that kind of opposition in this than we realize, I Think about Judas, when they're sitting around, uh, and Judas is in the room in Matthew chapter six or 26, and in Matthew 26, they're, they're sitting around there, and this woman comes in and begins to anoint Jesus' feet, right? And the disciples are, I mean, they, they're, they're just, what is this? And they're not just opposed because this sinful woman has come in and is touching Jesus' feet. That's not even the worst of it for them. That is a serious thing. But the fact that she has a very, very expensive perfume that she is wasting in their minds on anointing Jesus' feet. This is outrageous, right? And and they can't understand it. And yet Jesus affirms what she is doing and and, and shows that she's the one who's showing righteousness. And what happens right after that? We, We read that story. There's much that we could say about it. But what happens right after that? Judas goes away and betrays Jesus. I don't think it's a mistake that that's right after this extravagant moment in which Judas himself, who took care of the money for the disciples, was not very happy about this utter waste. And Jesus, the, he, he couldn't believe this. Uh, over and over again, we see the Pharisees and the Jews' opposition to Jesus' extravagant grace in the New Testament. This is, this is a constant theme that happens. They can't believe it. And we too have these moments where we too come up against God's grace and we think, it, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It, it just seems too good to be true and yet it is true. Well, in just to go back to my story, I forgot to finish it. Uh, I had some, some of my very good friends, they spent all night with me, all night long, <laughs> opening up God's word and opening up some of the texts that I'm gonna share with you today and just showing me over and over again why why to believe that I can simply live however I want and go on in and sin and yet, and yet uh, be faithful, yet that's the meaning of God's grace, uh, is a total misunderstanding of what it actually means to be a Christian. And so this is the question that's going to get raised uh, here in Galatians 2. So in Galatians 2, uh, there's a problem that arises. In fact, what, what Pastor Nick has been declaring and unfolding over the last several weeks is the fact that Paul has been declaring how it is or on what basis we are justified. And the word justified or justification means that we are made right with God, that we are out of step with Him That because of our sin, we are at odds with him, but God has sent his son, and through his son, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, he has justified us. He has brought us into a right relationship with God, and this work of God is by first to last, by God's grace alone, and this has been what Paul has been proclaiming and holding up, and in fact, when he gets there, last week, Pastor Nick talked about that he, he gets... To to these Galatians, and he tells them, I saw Peter actually acting in a way that is out of step with God's grace, out of step with justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And so he confronted him. And what Peter or Paul established last week in the two verses prior to this passage in verse 17 is that he and Peter actually believed the same thing. That their gospel is not at odds. Peter was out of step with what he believed, but they are not at odds. That they believe that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we get to verse 17, and here's this problem that arises. He says, but if in our endeavor or in our efforts to be justified in Christ, we too were found To be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now there's a question. Is Christ a servant of sin? Now why does that matter? Well, you can just feel maybe that question seems a little off, right? That seems a little strange to say, is Christ a servant? Or in other words, there's an agent of sin. Is he actually promoting it? Why would, why would this be an issue for them? Because in their, in their, their belief and their understanding, uh, in fact, here it says uh, that, that we too were found to be sinners here. So if, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, we have to understand what he means by sinner here. And he already explained it in verse 15. What, he, what he's referring to is that there are those Judaizers, those Jews who now believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they believe that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. They believe that they must trust in him, and yet they also, they also, as Jews, believe that full justification to be fully right with God means that we also need to follow these laws as well. We need to uphold these ceremonial laws, and so. And so when he talks about being sinners here, he's not talking about in general that we're sinners. He's saying sinners, meaning we don't uphold these laws. A Gentile sinner. You see, the Jews were not Gentile sinners because they had the law and they upheld the law. So they thought, not perfectly, but, but they upheld the law. And so... He's saying here, if in our endeavor, like we are actually pursuing justification, not in keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, in this, then now in their sight, these Jews' sight, we have become Gentile sinners because we're not keeping the law. We're not upholding the law. You see how complicated this is? Like it feels complicated even as I'm sharing it, right? Like it gets really complicated to think this through, like what they're actually thinking and so, he says, so therefore, in these, in these Jewish believers' minds, if, if, because they're setting aside the law in order to pursue justification by faith in Christ alone, he says, he's showing here that if that's what it means, then these Jewish believers are, are, have to believe that Jesus then is promoting sin. Because if I'm pursuing righteousness in Christ, justification in Christ, and I'm actually sinning in their minds, then Jesus' way <laughs> is, is bad. Doesn't that sound outrageous? And this is exactly what Paul says. Outrageous. He says, absolutely not. This is not what's going on. This is not the case. Um, he, and so he goes on to explain here and actually gives some support that'll hopefully make a little sense of this passage for us. Why is his affirmation or his assertion to say absolutely not which is actually an extremely powerful forceful not he's saying here in english we say certainly not but it's like it's like he's saying it on on his tiptoes you know absolutely not (laughs) like heaven forbid we would say like you know uh we, we there's just no way he's he's frustrated, in fact, and he's, he's absolutely outraged by the thought of, that these people would think that pursuing justification in Christ alone would make Christ a promoter of sin and make me a sinner. He, he can't believe that they would even suggest such a thing, and in fact, um, he says here two supportive clauses, which are started by the word for, these, connective, uh, these connectives here. He says, for, this is not true, for... If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I rebuild what was tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Let me just make a statement here, and then I'll help us understand the law a bit. I think that'll make some sense. He's, the reason why he's opposed to this, he says, is that this that is pursuing Christ, justification in Christ, this does not make Christ an agent of sin, because Paul's going to say, it's not sin to be a sinner in this sense. You like that? No, you don't, because it's very confusing. It's not sin to be considered a sinner in this sense. <laughs> yeah, you guys are like, this is, this is really crazy. This is the struggle I had with this text all week. Right? I really did. I wrestled with it. But that's what Paul's saying. The reason why is, because this will make more sense, it is not sin to lean wholly on Christ for your justification instead of leaning on the ceremonial laws of circumcision. That make more sense? Everybody shake, some people shaking their head now. So in this sense, Christ is not an agent of sin. He's not promoting sin. And because it's not sin To be a sinner in this sense because it's not sinful to wholly uh, trust or to to lean wholly on Christ for your justification instead of the ceremonial laws. You see, the problem was is that they misunderstood the law in the Old Testament. These Jewish, uh, quote, Christians who believed Jesus was the Messiah, that he died on the cross, was resurrected, they had a wrong view of the law just like the Pharisees had a wrong view of the law. They actually believed that the law was a means of their becoming right with God. And that's not what the law ever was for. And let me give you an example that I think will help us understand this. Um, God in the Old Testament gave the law like a set of railroad tracks. So the, just think of the law for a minute. It's a set of railroad tracks. The law is the tracks. The tracks, the, the nails, the railroad ties. That's the law. And, and in this... In this picture, the engine that sets on those tracks is the grace of God. And it's that engine that, that God's grace through the power of his spirit that pulls us along on the course of obedience and sanctification in the Old Testament. This is the purpose of the law. And so, so we have the law. We have this engine of God's grace that pulls us along. And the connecting couplers that, hold the, that tie the car to the engine is faith. Does that make sense? So you have the law, thats this, this guide, these rails, this, these fences. That, and we have this engine, which is God's grace, which pulls us along. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you can read this. And then you have this faith. Faith in God is the coupler that ties us or ties the cars to the engine and pulls it along towards obedience and sanctification. That's that's the picture of the law. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament throughout all of history, the only way a person is justified, made right with God, is by grace. It is by God's work of grace, even in the Old Testament. The law was never intended to be a means of justification. But here's what they did, and here's what these people in this text are doing. They, They actually ripped up the track they ripped it up, the nails, the railroad ties, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the spikes, everything. They rip it all up, and they have stood it up against heaven as a ladder, as a means of actually climbing and working their way towards God to be accepted and be, to be received into heaven. Now that illustration seems utterly absurd, doesn't it? You don't ever think of somebody actually ripping up railroad tracks and leaning them up and using them as a ladder. It's it's just as absurd of an illustration as it is to think that one could be justified by works of the law. This is what Paul is trying to help them see. Heaven forbid. And what Paul says here in verse 18 that he has tore down is it's the ladder that he's tore down. It's this this belief that that, that it is actually, uh, we can actually get accepted by God by works of obeying God's law. He's saying this is utterly absurd. In fact, <laughs> let me read this illustration that a pastor, a pastor actually uh, did this out. I didn't make this up. Uh, he, he laid this out. But listen to the way he says it. He says, this way of salvation, that is by grace, is so contrary to our human ego since God has to do everything for us. It is incredibly unpopular. The Pharisees and the the Jews in our text and many others with them, as as well as many of us today, we did this amazing thing. We lift up the rails, we lean them up against the door of heaven, we make it into a ladder, and, and this is the greatest picture of legalism. We make the law into a long list of steps which we use to demonstrate our moral fitness in order to attain heaven. While the track is on the ground, some of the ceremonial ties could be pulled out from under the rails without ruining the track. But as the ladder, as a ladder, every single rung is crucial or you may climb in order to climb to the next. Think about this. This is why the Pharisees were so rigid and so intent on obeying every single solitary letter of the law. is because when you misuse God's law and you hold it up against heaven. And you use it as a, as a ladder to climb. If you take out one tiny piece of it, what happens? You fall. You fall. You fail, don't you? And therefore every tiny little step Matters. And it becomes this rigid, legalistic rules in which we and that's never the way God's law was intended. So Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, this legalistic pursuit of righteousness, if I, if I tear that down in Christ, if I try to rebuild it, then I make myself a transgressor. Because it is wrong. It is wrong to, to try to go back and pursue righteousness from the very thing that can't provide righteousness in the first place. That is sin. That makes me a transgressor, which is a lawbreaker, which is knowing what's right, pursuing justification by faith in Christ alone, and yet going back and trying to pursue it by some other means is utterly absurd to Paul. Verse 19 then builds this argument one more step, and then we get to probably one of the most crucial verses that you and I could ever possibly wrestle with as a Christian. Verse 19. Four. Based on verse 18, he says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law. What what did the law do in us? The law brings us face to face with the reality that we are sinners in need of God, doesn't it? This is part of what the law did It reveals our unrighteousness. Paul says in Romans 7, he says, It wasn't until the law came that I realized that coveting was wrong. Notice he doesn't say, I became a coveter. I was already coveting. (laughs) But all of a sudden, the law of God came, and it revealed just how ugly and how sinful and how covetous I really was. And it just exponentially kept building, right? Because the more I see the perfect holiness of God, the more I realize I'm not in step with him. And so the law killed us. And so Paul says, if, if I, I died to the law in order to live to God, that in order, in order to live, we must first die. And so this is, again, why it's a transgression to go back any other way. If, if I have to die to the law in order to live to God, how absurd is it that I would go back to the law in order to try to live to God? It, it makes me utterly ridiculous. So you, now you're kind of getting the, the ridiculousness of this. It doesn't make any sense. For I died to the law that I might live to Christ. And what does it actually look like to die to the law? What does this actually mean? Uh, Paul basically is going to show us in verse 20 one of the most crucial texts that my friends spent all night sharing with me this is one of the texts, that they spent all night, and we spent till 6 a.m. in the morning, this is how stubborn I was, uh, just trying to wrestle with what this means and what the implications are. You see, the ultimate solution to this problem, this question, is to understand our union with Christ, to understand our identity in Christ. It's It's not that Our behavior simply needs modified. And it's not even that being a Christian means that your behavior gets modified. What happens when you become a Christian is that you are made a whole new person in Christ. You were given a completely different identity, and this is the answer. This is the thing that ought to carry us as Christians along. This is the thing that helps us to overcome all of our sin, to overcome all the things that that we struggle with, to overcome despair and depression and sin in our lives. It is to remind ourselves regularly and constantly of this incredible truth in, in Galatians 2 verse 20. This is Paul's answer. That it does Christ promote sin? Absolutely not. For he's died to the law, he lives to God. And why? How? How has this been made possible? Let's look at verse 20. I'm just going to go through these each, like each of these prepositional phrases holds significant weight. And so we'll just try to take each one of them in turn. And really, uh, you could rearrange these things. I read an author this week, and he rearranged them all, and that's the way I want to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it just as the text does it here. He, he says, first of all, Paul says, and notice that he's giving a personal testimony here. He switched from the third person to the first person. He's saying, I. This is I, Paul. This is, this is what's happened in my life. This is what conversion means This is what it means to be a Christian. And ironically, you'll notice that Paul actually never calls believers Christians. He never calls them Christians. He always identifies them as being those who are, in our text here, in Christ. It's a crucial thing. So Paul begins by saying, in verse 20, Ah, here's what life looks like after you've died to Christ. Here's what it looks like or died to the law and lived to God. He says, I have been, first of all, crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, in Christ, I have died out of, in essence, this old family, the family that belonged to Adam, the sinful nature. I have died to this old self, and, and I am now alive in a whole new way. Uh, I am in a new family. I have been crucified with Christ. Think about what Christ's death means for us. It it affirms, first of all, just how utterly wretched and sinful our sinfulness is. The fact that God sends His Son perfect and holy, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that he poured out his wrath and we could read about it, we could imagine it, we see it unfold. The fact that that, that is what it took, that was the, the penalty, the payment for our sin. It reminds us of just how horrific and terrible our situation was and how serious our sin really is. But it also is this beautiful picture. This is the irony of Good Friday coming up, right? It's this this strange picture of that horrific, awful death is beautiful news for us. That Christ in his body, he died on the cross absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve. And then Paul says the beautiful thing about what it means to be a Christian is that it means in the same way as Christ Christ was crucified, he says, I, Paul, have been crucified with him. Meaning, I have died with Christ. That as I am united to Christ, and we're going to talk about how that happens in a minute, as I am united with Christ, it's not as though we go back in time and actually die with him in that sense, but his death is my death. He died and removed the curse of the law And therefore, in Christ, I too have died to the old self, and the curse has been removed. This old me has been removed and taken away. This is great news. I have been crucified with Christ. The part of you and me, uh, this self reliant, self confident uh, person that cannot stand at the foot of the cross, it's killed. The part of us which loves to display our power, that loves to climb the moral ladder, dies at the cross. And so as Christ died, we too have died. The old Chris is dead. But he doesn't stop there. He says the implication of this is it is no longer I who live. <laughs> I live, but it's no longer the I who live prior to Christ's death. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. This is is a beautiful truth. This is conversion. This is what it means. This is our testimony, every one of us, that we have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in us, in me. That's conversion. A Christian isn't someone who simply believes the teachings of the Bible in your head. Satan believes that. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To simply believe everything that the Bible says is not a Christian. That might surprise you, but it's not. Satan believes all of that, the Bible says. It's much deeper than that. Much deeper than that. A Christian is someone who has died with Christ whose stony, hard heart has been killed, whose pride has been put to death, whose stubbornness has been broken, and now is not only been mastered by Jesus Christ, but this very Christ, who has died on the cross, has been raised from the dead, lives inside of us. He is in us. Um, Let me just share with you many verses that I think beautifully portray this. Listen to the words of these verses. I have a whole string of them. I think they're going to be on your screen. John 14, verse 20, he says, Jesus says this, In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and that you and you in me, and I in you. John 15, verses 4 and 5, he says, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am in the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Listen to John 17 verse 23, the priestly prayer at the end of Jesus' life. He says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Colossians 1.27 is a beautiful text. He says, to them, the church, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what's the mystery? Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and therefore I, the old me, no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. What are the implications of that? He goes further. There's another implication. And he says, and the life I now live in the flesh... So this isn't some future hope only, even though it is. It's not just something that's far out there. But right now, he says, this life, as a result of being crucified with Christ and Christ living in me, this life that I live right now in the flesh is lived by faith in the Son of God. It's lived by faith in the Son of God. This is what it means to be a Christian, that the life I now live, I live by faith faith in the Son of God. To, to, to put your faith in something, in fact, uh, the Old Testament uh, gives us a lot of insight into this. To put your faith in something means to lay the full weight of your life on something. It means, if, if I was to jump up on this podium right here, I'm not sure if it would hold me or not, I, I was thinking about just doing it, but it may, some of you guys are... But it means, it, to put my faith in Christ means to put the full weight of my life on him. And ironically, my hesitance to jump up on this podium is the same hesitance that many of us and the same opposition that our flesh has to trusting in Jesus. We're not sure it's gonna hold us up. Isn't that the problem of these Jewish Christians? They had the, what, what I, you've heard me say before, the Jesus Plus program, Right? They they believed that Jesus is the Messiah, died on the cross for our sins and so on and so forth. But we're not totally sure we can lean fully on him. We need to also build up another thing that we can trust in. Just to make sure, right? We're not sure if it's actually going to hold. But to, to truly put your faith in Christ means to throw the whole weight of your life on him. To bank everything on him, on his righteousness, on his finished work. It means to, to put it all. So, so this kind of faith is, is a faith that means that we are by faith, just like in the Old Testament, you have the, the locomotive that, that, that fuels the grace of God, and the coupler is the faith that connects the car to the engine. Faith is also what connects us to Christ. It is by faith. This life we now live, we live coupled to Christ. We put everything, we stocked our whole life, we banked everything on him. It means to be united to him. Faith, in fact, is a response to a work that has already been done on your behalf. It's to bank your life on something that's already been completed and to trust it with your whole heart. Faith means to rest in that, to, to put everything in it. It means to thrust your sin and your guilt that, that, that makes you opposed to God. It means to, to entrust your sin and your guilt and to lay it upon Christ, buried and raised. Faith is a great transfer from trusting yourself to trusting in Jesus. That's, that's in fact the way in which the Spirit of God converts us. That's the way in which we die, right? Right? when I begin to trust in Christ and I cease to trust in Chris. This is a great transfer. I, my sinful, self-centered self, has died, and therefore I have put my full trust and weight in another who lives. In fact, John says that because he lives, I live. My whole life is wrapped up with Christ. Everything. I'm connected to him in every way in his life and death and resurrection. There is, in fact, a new eye. It's it's no longer the same eye, but it's a new eye that looks to Christ and trusts in him alone. And the basis of all of this is found at the end of this passage. In verse 20, he says. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. In essence, that's the the starting place. It's because of the love of God in sending his son who, who loved me and who gave up his life for me. It's because of this finished work that he has done on my behalf, that any of this will matter at all. Why can I trust Jesus? Because he's proven his love for me at Calvary's cross. He's proven it. He's shown it clearly. This is our Savior. And as I put my faith in him, I become so one with him that I also have died with him, was buried with him, was raised with him to newness of life. My life is wrapped up in him. And the last verse of this passage, verse 21, simply says this. Paul, in essence, sums up this whole problem that he's been wrestling with, which he's perplexed by with these Galatians and certainly with the apostle Peter. He's perplexed by what Peter is doing because the way Peter is acting doesn't seem to add up, and so Paul then summarizes this whole thing by simply saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, again, this is defining why this is so absurd, if righteousness is really through the law, then Christ died for no purpose at all. You and I as Christians want to make sure that our understanding of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian doesn't get anywhere close to that. In our understanding of what it means to be a child of God purchased by the blood of Christ, we want to make sure that that we don't describe and define and even live our faith in such a way that it actually shows and demonstrates that Jesus died for nothing. I I think in reality, we also have these Christian ladders that we erect, we set these things up, right? We have these certain rules that we have come up with. And these, these things can actually begin to do the same thing, that if there is any work in you that could possibly make you right before God, then you've just declared with your actions or maybe even with your words that Jesus died for nothing. If, if, because if there is any way that you and I could earn any favor from God apart from his grace, then Jesus doesn't need to die. And therefore, he went through all of that for nothing. Think about that this Easter as you meditate upon the cross. Think about, eh, it doesn't really mean much. What a waste. That, that, that doesn't, doesn't sit well for us, right? That Jesus did not die on the cross for nothing. And in fact, going back to my own wrestling in my own life, um, when you think about what Christ has accomplished and how my life is hid with God in Christ, how I have been crucified and buried and raised with him, I am one with him as all those passages talk about that he in me and I in him, that there's no way of separating the two of us. When we think about that, How is it possible for me that night till 6 a.m. in the morning, at the end of that I concluded that no way did Jesus go through all of that so that I could go on and sin more? How utterly ridiculous would that be? He died to set me free from all of that. He died so that I would die to all of those things. This is, in fact, what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian Um, over the course of your life, uh, some of you uh, will attest to this, but um, oftentimes people say of married couples that as they get older, we start to look like each other. We start to act like each other. We finish each other's sentences. We say each other's phrases. But we really even kind of look like each other. It's really strange what happens, right? You spend so much time with each other that you begin to actually be one, right? That's the Christian life. You are so one with Christ. And as you, as you over the course of your life, as you're with him, in him, as, as, as he works in your life, the, the aim is, is that you will just look more and more and more like him. Because your identity is ultimately found in him and him alone. It's wrapped up in him. Let me just finish off today. I want to read a passage, Romans chapter 6 raises this whole question again. And I want to read this because I want us to have a way of reminding ourselves of this truth, of our union with Christ. A way of something to take with us. that This is, this is something for the rest of your life that you can constantly point to and think about that will remind you of this truth, when you are discouraged, when you're struggling with sin, when things are falling apart, in your world, you could come back to this reality that is true, I hope, for every one of us, and you could remind yourself of what this means, of who you are, because of what has happened in your life, because of what God has done for you, and so in this passage in Romans 6 verse 1, uh, there's, a, there's an issue that has arose, another question, we won't preach through the text, but there's another question that arose that's very similar to the one that we had, but has a little different uh, slant to it. But basically, people are saying, hey, if God's grace is even greater in light of sin, then let's just sin a whole lot so that God's grace in forgiving us will just be that much bigger, right? <laughs> Isn't that great? That's another, that's another, this is the stuff that men, you know, like human beings, we come up with this kind of stuff, right? Like we're always figuring out and inventing ways. Like, hey, we could sin a bunch, and it'll all be good. In fact, it'll be better, right? We're always figuring out these kinds of things. And yet, uh, Paul has an answer for that, which is the same answer he gave, up, gave to the Galatians. He says, absurd. This is ridiculous. But listen to what Paul gives to them. Very same argument, in essence, of what Galatians 2.20 is saying. He says, verse 3, or verse, uh, verse 2, he says, By no means, how can we who here it is, died to sin, still live in it. And he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Notice how baptism here becomes this reminder. It's a reminder of what, of what? Of what Paul has done? No, 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 it's a reminder of what God has done in Paul and on Paul's behalf, right? Your baptism, contrary to what you thought, it wasn't just something that happened at some point in your life and is no big deal now. This is the very thing that ought to encourage and strengthen and remind you of who you are every day. He says, so do you not know? In fact, Paul is almost kind of like shocked, like, don't you know this? Weren't you baptized? (laughs) Don't you know what this means, you know? I always think of, do you know what you've done? Like, this crazy moment? Like, are you serious? Do you know what this means? He's saying he's just he's kind of perplexed. He says, not only were we who were baptized, we were baptized into his death. That is, we became one with Christ in his death. But not only that, verse four, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So we we are we were. We died with him, we were crucified with him, we were buried with him, right? This beautiful picture, and then he goes on to say we were, we were buried with him, therefore in baptism, into death, in order that, here's the purpose, just as Christ was raised from the dead. This is an amazing thing. Think about how certain he's saying these words. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's an incredible. Do you, you see the, the absolute certainty with which he just said that? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too. So as certain as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, that he was raised to new life, that's the same certainty with which you and I have this new life, that we may walk in it. That's what he says at the end here, right? He says that we may walk in the newness of life, and amen indeed, right? And so every day of your life, you can just remember your baptism. Remember the, the picture, the beautiful thing that happened in baptism. Glorious picture of your union with Christ, that you have been made one with him, you were buried and you were raised to newness of life. And that certainty, I just love that phrase, the certainty in that text is amazing. So, so my charge to you today, the application is simply walk in that. It's what Paul's saying, walk in that, believe, remind yourself of who you are. And this is why you and I can be absolutely confident every day, not of what we have done. Not because I've somehow had a good response to the gospel. No, no, no. It's because of what God in Christ has done on my behalf in uniting me by faith to Jesus Christ. And so, be encouraged as a church. Be encouraged as an individual. Be strengthened. If you're struggling here this morning, if, if you're depressed and discouraged and down, if things have not turned out the way you thought they were going to turn out, know this truth Bring yourself to this truth, because this is who I am. My, my God will be with me. He will walk with me through thick and thin, through, through good times and bad times. He will see me through, He will pull me along by His grace. Why? Because Jesus Christ lives in you. You will never, ever have a day in which that's not true. Isn't that great? That's good news. It's good news let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that we here today would be encouraged and strengthened by the truth of this word, that we today would live our lives in light of our union with Christ, that just as Jesus is one with the Father, so we are one with Him. And that no more could He deny us than He could deny His very self. God, I pray that this reality would affect every aspect of our lives. And in fact, it does. It can't be true in us if it hasn't affected us. We have a whole new life that you have called us into as a result of this gospel. And so God, I pray that your grace and our understanding of your grace through faith, this, this relationship that we have with Christ, that we have been justified in Christ alone, that these truths would press even deep, more deeply into our lives and that we would be strengthened by them for your glory, for your sake. And Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.